because it stayed with you. In this sense, um, after I had this experience, I, I came back from my integration with Mary, and uh, I told her what had happened, and she was, you know, she said, well, isn't that worth the price of admission, this idea that you saw you don't have to identify with your ego all the time? And I said, yeah, but my ego is back in uniform and on patrol and doing its usual thing, so what good was that temporary experience? And she said, you know, you can cultivate that. Mm. Having had a taste, a sample of another way to react, a less defensive way to react to what happens in your life, you can cultivate it. And I asked her how, and she said through meditation. Yeah. And I think that for a lot of people who've had major psychedelic experiences, meditation is, is a very good way to sustain the kind of feelings and kinds of consciousness. Because I've seldom achieved it in meditation, but occasionally have, and, and I've read a lot of accounts of it. But that, that, disin, that, that detached awareness that you, that you, I know you shouldn't use words like strive when you're talking about your meditation practice, but, um, <laughs> but that, yes. you, that sometimes you're lucky to experience to where, you, where you have strong emotions and resentments and regrets and all these things, but you just kind of let them go and, and detach from them. That that's I think that's where you can go to sustain it, and and so I work on that right now. And I think also when you go back to someone like Baba Ramdas, be here now, that actually that feeling of detachment is when you are totally in the present. Yes. And the rest of the past and the future yeah. fall and away. Yeah. And it's no accident. And then you are universal. Yeah. It's no accident that time travel gets yeah. turned off during the psychedelic experience, so as it does in the meditation experience. So one last point about neuroscience. If you can stand yeah, yeah, no, no, we need to quickly Is that when they, when they um, scan the minds of these people on psilocybin in the fMRI, um, a researcher at Yale named Judson Brewer was doing the same thing with people who were very experienced meditators. He would put, slide them in and ask them to meditate. And their brain scans looked just like the people on psychedelics. The same networks had been downregulated. I think that's really interesting. There are very interesting connections between psychedelics and meditation. So going back to... Timothy Leary time, or the 60s time, when, so to speak, psychedelics left the laboratory and hopped into, uh, and became terrifying to society. Um, well, to parts of society. Parts of society, yeah. but, you know, the, the yeah. fact that suddenly... The it was people in charge. People in charge <laughs> thought this would be no Vietnam, no work, no everything, and they were kind of right. Um, and so all it was made illegal. How are we going to use it now and not have that happen. Yeah. And also, do you, you know, going back to, say, Cary Grant taking it 60 times, which is one of the many amazing facts I learned from your book, I mean, why can't someone like you, what, what's wrong with someone who's, quote, well, just getting better or weller or, yeah. in a way, well, taking a, you know, is it a shortcut to what you could achieve through 10,000 hours of meditation? I mean, why can't we all have it? Because it's illegal. <laughs> well, um, I, you know, I do think... Should it stay illegal? What? Should it stay illegal in your view? I'm not sure exactly what should happen. I think the path we're on now is a good path for right now, which is um, doing the drug trials that the EMA and the FDA are asking of the researchers and, and following this path toward approval as a medicine. Um, I think that that's, that's the smart course because there's nothing impeding that right now. It will probably happen in five years or so. At that point, doctors could prescribe psilocybin uh, and, um, you know, they can do it off-label. In other words, they don't necessarily have to give it to people with pathological um, diagnoses. Uh, 
in the same way that many people with kind of garden variety unhappiness go to therapists and get some value, um, people who aren't necessarily sick um, would be able to seek this from psychiatrists and, and uh, psychotherapists uh, in con consultation with a psychopharmacologist. So I think that that's one path. Um, I think simply legalizing it um, the way we've, we're doing in the states gradually with cannabis, state by state. And I, I come from I come from California, where now you can walk into a shop and buy cannabis as long as you're prove you're 18. Um, it's a pretty deregulated marketplace. Um, I, I think that the drugs are very powerful, and that they do need some kind of cultural container. Um, if, if you look at the lessons of traditional cultures who have used psychedelics, you see that they, uh, whether we're talking about you know, Aztecs mm. or Amazonian Indians or um, ancient Greeks who had a psychedelic, we think, had a psychedelic ritual, um, they always had elders involved. Um, they seldom took the drugs alone, uh, if ever. They, it was always some ritual. It was only done with great purpose on certain days of the year. Um, so in other words, they had a recognition that this was a powerful force that had to be treated with a certain kind of respect and that you needed a cultural container for it. There's a medical container that we're creating right now um, down the road at Imperial College in, in the United States and back in the 50s uh, in Saskatchewan. But there may be another container that, for, for what one researcher described to me as the betterment of well people, um, that we need to, and that's cultural work we need to do. Um, so I'm not sure exactly how we do it. Um, your other question, though, how do we avoid the kind of backlash that we saw in the 60s? You know, that's somewhat concerning. As time goes on, though, I'm, 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 I don't think we're going to repeat that experience. That was a very unique point in history. Sorry. Is that my phone? Yeah. <laughs> Hold on. Sorry about that. Yes. Uh, yes. It, go on. And, well, in this sense, you had this very... First, the drugs were new. Okay? Nobody knew anything about them. They had just exploded, you know, on our cultures. Um, they created a rite of passage for the young called the acid trip that was transformative, very intense, um, but it was a rare rite of passage in that the adults in society were completely ignorant of mm -hmm. it. Usually rites of passage are designed by adults to bring adolescents into adult society. So they knit, they knit culture together. That's their function, whether you're talking about a bar mitzvah or a vision quest or whatever it is. Here you had this very odd anomaly that won't be repeated uh, of the young having a rite of passage that the that adults simply didn't understand. And it produced uh, people at the end of which that were very hard for adults to follow. I think it contributed mightily to what we call the generation gap. Uh, the fact that you had, that youth culture was really a distinct culture to a much greater extent than we've ever seen. Um, I think LSD deserves some credit or blame for that, however you feel about it. Um, but that's not going to happen again, the, the, because the adults in society um, know the territory. Um, they're not, I mean, I didn't react as strongly when my son had his first LSD trip as my parents would have if I had it at the same age. Um, so I think we passed through that moment. There are no doubt regulators at the EMA and regulators at the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration in America, who know the territory, who've had psychedelic experiences. 
So I don't think you're going to get quite as violent a backlash. What about LSD with creativity? Why should people <coughs> not take it for that? People do take it for that. Um, uh, we don't know that it does anything for creativity. A lot of people think it does. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence that psychedelics, by breaking habitual patterns exactly. of thought, um, allow people to see new possibilities. And I tell the story of lots of you know, engineers and scientists who had important insights. It's a hard thing to study scientifically because scientists, we don't even know what creativity is. I mean, there's no good scientific definition. We have definitions of problem solving, but as you know, creativity is bigger than problem solving. And there were studies in the 60s and 70s to see if you could enhance creativity. They would give 100 micrograms of LSD to people and put them in a room. They'd let them, you know, uh, move around on the floor for a while and trip. And then they'd say, okay, to your workstations. And they were all people working on some big problem uh, of, uh, you know, architecture or engineering. And the people claim that they had breakthroughs, but there's no control. It's, it's not very good science. So I think creativity is a very interesting thing uh, to explore. I know the team at Imperial College has been eager to do it, and they have a model. Amanda Fielding, who supports the research there, has always thought that the game of Go was a good model for creativity, to see if people on LSD would perform better at the game of Go. And? I, I don't know the name of it. It hasn't happened yet. Okay. Um, <laughs> stay tuned. I don't know that is gay a good uh, is go a good uh, surrogate for creativity. I'm not sure. Chess is not actually. No. I mean, um, so anyway, it's an interesting. It's an and people are microdosing, of course, and they believe that it enhances their creativity. But I have to say, there's still no science about microdosing at all. Okay. Well, let's get some questions from the audience. But just one thing that I just want to ask you: in the first time you take a trip, and you're you're with that the guy who stammers. Yeah. and you're looking for mushrooms, and you, you come up with this line about how the psilocybin mushrooms are so identical to the mushroom that kills you. Yes. And it struck me as kind of amazing. Why would nature put something that gives you visions next to something? That kills you. Yeah, that's I a mean, good what's, question. What's nature trying to do there? Well, we don't know why mushrooms produce psilocybin. It's an interesting question, whether it's an attractant, and there are animals that will select psilocybin mushrooms and like to eat them. Uh, or is it a, a defense chemical meant to poison? Um, and you know, so we, we still don't know that. Um, there's some recent research that suggests that the mushrooms are competing with anthropods, arthropods, insects, for a food source, decaying vegetable matter. Mm -hmm. And by creating this chemical, they essentially discombobulate their competitors. And the, and the insects go, what was I doing? <laughs> Okay. Where am I? <laughs> and that's a very clever strategy. That's incredibly advanced. Yeah. <laughs> okay, where are the um, microphones? There's a, there's Lots loads. of questions. Okay, Ellen, let's start up there. I was wondering whether or not, I mean, you're saying about rites of passage, uh, I, but with my children, I think it's the technology thing that, uh, uh, that I don't understand, and they do. But actually, I was going to... Uh, ask the question about in the trips that are that people have had over the decades now that have been um, uh, documented has what people have seen changed because they know more about the creativity yeah. and the uh, what's possible uh, in in the world uh, than before 
Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So as I, I said earlier, Leary said that you know the experience is heavily shaped by set and setting. So what you've read, if you've read Doors of Perception, you're going to have a Huxleyan experience. And um, and you know when I had and people on ayahuasca, which is a, another uh, medicine that I explored, it's an Amazonian tea that contains DMT. People tend to have imagery that's related to vines and the jungle. And um, I mean, I have to assume that's an exp expectancy effect. Over the years, you know, have we done that kind of ethnography to see how trips have changed? Not really, not in a formal way. Um, it, it is the case, though, that when the moral panic against LSD began, people having, began having more bad trips. Um, I think making it illegal contributed to more bad trips. Um, so it's, it's very sensitive to what's going on in our civilization. And it would be an interesting so sociological project to take trip reports from the 50s and the 60s and the 90s and, the, and, and currently and look for those kind of patterns. There are similarities, uh, and no one knows, I mean, there's a study, another study, this is the weirdest study going on in your city at uh, Imperial College uh, of DMT, and I asked them why, DMT is a very short acting um, psychedelic. It's like sometimes called the businessman's trip. It's like 20 minutes, and, but it's very intense. And uh, there's a, a, a tradition and a belief that people see entities on DMT. Sometimes they're, they're referred to as machine elves, I guess kind of robotic elves. And this is consistent across many, many people, but my, my guess is that until someone started writing about machine elves, everybody didn't see them. The idea that the molecule could somehow open onto a, a world occupied by these machine elves just seems so implausible. But there are many people, and I met several of them last night, who believe that they're really seeing some other dimension where the machine elves live. Okay. This is going to get a serious test. We'll find out. Great talk. Uh, thank you for a fascinating talk. Um, my name is Mark Konigsbaum. I'm a medical historian, used to be a journalist, also an rationalist. But I wanted to lighten this a little bit. Um, talking, you've been talking a lot about psilocybin, but there are yeah. actually two ingredients, as you know, in magic mushrooms, the other being psilocin. Yeah. Um, and you may be interested to know that only 500 yards from where we're sitting today, in 2003, magic mushrooms in all their wonder and variety, were, free, were legally on sale on the Portobello Road because of a loophole in uh, the British Classified uh, Regulation of Drugs Act. So it was illegal to sell any uh, botanical product that had been altered by the hand of man. But if it was in its natural state, <laughs> you could, you could uh, some entrepreneurs discovered this and they set up little stalls just under the Westway, not far from where we are today. And you could buy all sorts of wondrous um, drugs, Hawaiians, Mexican, Cubensis. But my favorite was, um, <laughs> was one called the Philosopher's Stone, which is a truffle. And it doesn't have high, high levels of psilocybin, but it has high levels of psilocin. Um, I just wonder if you could talk. You obviously yeah. know a little bit about that, but it'd be interesting yeah. to share that with the rest yeah. of the Yeah, so, so there are two chemicals in psilocybin. Actually, there are two more chemicals, too, that have some effect on the experience, um, and I forget the name of them. Um, but 
psilocybin and psilocin, uh, psilocybin breaks down into psilocin in your body. So that would just kind of speed the, uh, the, the, uh, the effect. Uh, but they're, for all intents and purposes, the same chemical. Uh, I think that's really interesting that there was that loophole. Who drafted that law? He should have been fired. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, right. Okay. Yeah. So... I gather that there's a there's a, a petition drive to um, reschedule psilocybin that's uh, active in in uh, in England right now, which is interesting. Um, to to you know reschedule would make it easier to do research. Um, okay. Good. So you didn't have a question, right? Oh, about the psilocybin. Psil okay. Yeah. Okay. Good. Answered. Okay, Charlie. You, you alluded to uh, some of the risks of taking yeah. a sort of medical oh, massive you. dose of psilocybin uh, and having someone underground sort of helping you with them. But you, maybe I, I dozed off. Uh, but, I, but I don't think you actually talked about what the possible You risks. dozed off? I don't yeah. take questions from people who doze off. Uh, well, no, it's no. very honest, on the other hand. It's yeah. very honest. It is hot in here. Yeah. If someone was thinking about doing this for themselves. Yeah. No, so let me tell you what I learned about risks. risks. Yeah. I, I'm really glad you brought it up. Um, it's very important to talk about the risks. So when I started doing this research as a journalist, I, I looked at the risk question um, closely. And I was surprised by what I found. Um, the first thing I found is that the, the drugs are relatively non-toxic and that um, there is no lethal dose that we know of of either psilocybin or LSD. That's remarkable. Most drugs have a lethal dose. Um, and uh, they, they seem to affect these receptors in the brain and essentially nothing else. Don't, I mean, yes, a big experience might raise your heart rate or your blood pressure, but it's not a direct result of the pharmacology. So that was interesting. And then um, I think I mentioned, or maybe I didn't, that, that they're non-addictive. Um, that the, you know, after you've had a big psychedelic experience, your first thought is, where can I get some more? It's not. Um, it's like, do I ever have to do this again? It's, it's very powerful, and, and people don't take it regularly or, you know, every day, um, or don't want to. And if, and if you hook up the rat in that classic setup in the cage where he can administer drugs to himself, and they press the lever endlessly for cocaine, LSD they do once and never again. Um, so it's not addictive, it's relatively non-toxic, that's very reassuring. However, there are psychological risks. Um, people have bad experiences. People at risk for serious mental illness, things like schizophrenia, have occasionally been triggered into that, uh, had their first psychotic break on an LSD trip. Uh, have people ever jumped out of windows? There's a lot of talk about that. Yeah, there are people who've committed suicide on LSD. Um, it is, uh, you know, people also commit suicide on SSRI antidepressants, and we accept that as a, a rare but real risk. Um, and it's not a big story. It's interesting that if it happens on LSD, it's a huge story because it plugs into this narrative that these drugs make you crazy. Um, so there are risks, there are psychological risks, and um, uh, people have had psychotic episodes. Many of them have been misdiagnosed by psychiatrists as psychotic when it was really just a panic reaction. There's a story I tell in the book about um, uh, and Dr. Andrew Weil, the American, famous American doctor, who, uh, when he graduated medical school in 1968, went to Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco, and where there were a lot of people, and he volunteered at the free clinic, and there were a lot of people showing up 
with bad trips, people who thought they were going mad or dying. And he had had a lot of experience with uh, psychedelics himself, and um, he recognized that in most cases um, these were just panic attacks. So he figured out a re really clever way to treat them. He would take down some notes. He, he had his you know white coat on and the and the stethoscope around his neck. You know the the, the signs of our shamanism, right? Uh, and uh, and he would take down some notes, ask him a few questions, and then he'd say, "Excuse me, um, there's someone in the next room who's really in trouble. Uh, you know, I, I I'll, I'll be back." And as soon as they heard that someone was more fucked up than they were, they relaxed and it went away. <laughs> So it didn't work every time, but it worked a lot of times. So diagnosing what's going on with someone with, on psychedelics is difficult to do for that reason. I had a psychiatrist wrote me about an experience I had had, and he claimed I'd had a psychotic episode because it fit his definition. I had seen things that weren't there, and my personality had dissolved. And yeah, on paper it looks like psychosis, but is it? No. There's something wrong with the criteria. Uh, the question, the, the follow-up is, so if, unless you're at risk for schizophrenia, the risks are minimal. I wouldn't go so far as to say they're minimal. Um, I think that, you know, even if, if you do the drugs in a, in a careless way or in a bad setting, on a bad day, uh, you, could, you could have a, a, a really upsetting experience. Um, so that's why you really have to pay attention to the circumstances in which you do it and the mindset you bring to it. Thank you. And hopefully have somebody close to ground level who's with you. Okay. All right. Hello. Um, I just wanted to sort of go back to the beginning of the, the talk where you talked about a, you know, obviously we're in the middle of a large mental health crisis, which is going on and this increase in depression and, and whatever, which is obviously um, created by social and, and cultural and political factors in the world. And so, you know, you, by placing the, the use of these sort of psilocybin or psychedelics within a medical, um, you know, environment and sort of medicalizing it, and then treating people who are sick, but then those sick people come back out into a world which is becoming increasingly yeah. sick, uh, you know, environmentally, and, and, and also we have, who I could class as fairly sort of mentally ill people in very high positions of power in the world, um, sort of threatening us <laughs> I with... I don't know who with, you could with, be thinking about. ...with, with annihilation, um, you know, and, 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 and that's the norm. So you talked in the 60s about this, this, this gap between the generations with, with the young people having these experiences and the, the, people, the older people in power not understanding that. Um, and it's just, I, I just like to hear your thoughts on how, you know, what happens there. Because you, you could go off and have this incredible experience and lose your ego. And then mm -hmm. you step back into a world where everyone's looking at their phones at fake news and, and, yeah. and freaking out. And no one's interested in talking to yeah. you about it. Yeah, I mean, obviously... Well, that's been a debate in psychiatry for a long time. You heard that in the 60s, too, that do you want to um, make people better able to withstand a crazy world? In other words, should, they, should we address the people to... Should we adapt the people to the to the crazy world or should we change the crazy world? And obviously, um, political change is very, very important. Um, but the interesting thing about psychedelics, I think, is that they, they speak to some of our problems as a society. And this goes back to the why now question also. I, I've been really struck by the fact that what I see as the two biggest challenges to, to our society, I would say to civilization, uh, is an environmental crisis born of a disconnection from nature, uh, the fact that we objectify nature and, and therefore feel we can do whatever we want to it, uh, and, and, and by nature I mean not just the landscape but animals and 
you know, all the abuses we inflict on nature flow from a sense that nature is an object and we are the subject and um, therefore it's fine. And the second big problem is tribalism, which is actually very similar to yep. the first problem. Uh, we're objectifying the other, people who are not like us, who have a different faith or a different skin color. And we can therefore build walls against them uh, and um, treat them in a, uh, you know, in um, an awful way because we don't feel connected to them. Psychedelics addresses both those problems in the individual um, that they bring down these walls, and you feel, and I and I can speak from firsthand experience, you feel connected to nature in a way that would change your behavior and what you would tolerate as a, a way to treat animals or, or even plants. Um, although plants don't mind being eaten. Um, I just want to leave that with you so there, there's something left to eat. Um, so so well, let, me, let me get to that. So, um, so here we have these drugs that and, and on the tribalism side, people have powerful feelings of love and connection and empathy with other people. It's kind of exactly what we need in one level. But we don't have a model for administering a drug to a whole society. Timothy Leary tried that. You know, he tried to get everybody to take the drug. He, may, he had calculations of how many millions of people you had to, 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 to trip in order to change society. And he had 1.9 million or something he thought would do it. And other people thought you had to give it to the right people. And if you gave it to people in charge, you know, the best and the brightest, the, the leaders of industry and religion and the arts, that the, that, the, that the consciousness would filter down. I don't think we have a good model. I don't, I don't know how we, I don't think we can put it in the water supply. We do that with fluoride. That works pretty well. But LSD is very different than fluoride, which is perhaps the most obvious thing I've said tonight. Okay, <laughs> guy in the middle. Okay, yes, that's fine. And then we'll go to the, you after that. Hello. I just had a question, actually, about the music that was played to the subjects in the original experiment. Were they able to choose the music that they listened to? Yeah, good question. And I also wanted, if you could, if you could, if you asked them what kind of music they did listen to, if you could give us some examples of the kind of music they wanted so, to listen to. No, they really don't think you should choose your music because you'll have all these associations and these favorite songs, and they want you to uh, listen to music they've chosen. I could imagine, though, something like Spotify for psychedelics, where you would give them some idea of the kind of stuff you like and, more importantly, dislike, and that it would generate a playlist that gave the researchers what they wanted, um, but nevertheless didn't put you in a weird head. The thing I need to tell you, though, about my bad reaction to Thierry David, who may be a wonderfully talented artist, um, is that... Um, I had brought a computer into the room. There was a, there was a little experiment I wanted to try on myself, um, and, uh, and I did a couple times, and, it, and the imagery in the experiment was computer-generated imagery. So I had sort of contaminated the well myself, uh, and, that, and I heard that music, which in fact was, I don't know what instrument it was, but it was a string instrument. I heard it as electronica. So I was, again, there's set and setting for you. There's a lot of interesting work going on in the music for psychedelic experience. Um, I think that Brian Eno's involved in a project with the people at um, Imperial. Um, there's composition going on for psychedelic. Uh, what, what an exciting commission, you know. To, I mean, you're never going to have a more sensitive audience, right? Uh, more appreciative audience. 
Well, maybe not appreciative, but um, uh, but no, they, you you don't choose your music, and um, they have set playlists, and they differ. Some are kind of like old white men or old dead men, dead white men, um, and lots of classical and choral and things that to me sound like priming you for a, a spiritual experience. Others do much more neutral, spatialized music. Philip Glass or Brian Eno. Um, uh, there's a, you know, and there are debates within the community of what's the optimal music. But there's a man named Mendel Kalin who was a neuroscientist and a composer involved with uh, um, the work at Imperial. And if you look, he's written some interesting articles on the role of music. You can search his name. Okay. Um, gentleman there, and then I'll come to point. Hi there. Um, question about something you mentioned earlier about one of the people you spoke to who described the experience as, you know, divinity or, or God. And, you know, I'm just wondering if you've spoken to people who've had these experiences across cultures and how if the language or the cultural stories available to each culture affects the way that they describe their trip and how is that changing as we're becoming a more yeah. global society? That's a really good question. Um, I don't think it's been studied systematically, but in my own reporting, I found a very interesting distinction between American and English culture on psychedelic experience. So in America, uh, you hear a lot of talk of the mystical experience and that it is only when you have what's called a complete mystical experience, and of course the psychologists have the eight criteria of a mystical experience, and they, you fill out surveys, and I fill out one in the book, um, that that is a predictor of a successful outcome. And the researchers in England kind of bridle at this whole mysticism thing, and they, don't, they say, we don't see a lot of mystical experience, and they probably don't. What they see, what they call it, is ego dissolution. I think, they're, they're, I think it's the exact same phenomenology um, because when your ego dissolves, you have the feeling of merging with something larger that is a hallmark of the mystical experience, that sense of unitive consciousness and that loss of a sense of the noetic quality which, is, which William James ascribed to the mystical experience. That's the, that I was describing that sense of this is objectively true I think when you lose the subject-object duality in ego dissolution, everything would seem objectively true because there's no subject to doubt it. And um, so you could go down the list of the eight criteria and realize that the English patients and the American patients are having the same experience, but different vocabularies are being applied to them. And, and you know, America's a more religious culture. Um, and then there's this also this weird little fact, which is that the, the, the main driver of research in America, a man named Roland Griffith got interested in psychedelics. He was a conventional drug researcher who studied, you know, he did the monkey experiments with the lever. He, um, uh, he had had a mystical experience himself in meditation that opened him up to doing this work. So he began with a spiritual attitude and no doubt he conveyed that to all his volunteers. You can't help it. Okay. And we can take one more question after Polly and take the lady up there who's waving her hand. Okay. Right, it's just a quick one going back to what you were talking about before about sensory deprivation and the controlled experiment. If a decision is taken to blindfold people, why would you play the music? Why would it not also be important to give them earplugs? Yeah, it, it would argue, I know, it's, a, it's kind of a contradiction. Um, the, the, uh, the blindfold is about removing sensory input, and then the, um, and the, the headphones are adding sensory input. And it's a good question. I'm not sure exactly why. 
I think it's very hard to really make it silent in a room and people would be heavily distracted by traffic noise or whatever came up. Yeah, I guess you could do that. Um, uh, I don't know. I should ask the researchers. But I actually think they see the music as a positive. When it first started coming into the treatment room, um, it, it kind of drives the trip forward. Music is very powerful. And, um, and if the music is neutral enough, um, you can, as I did, I created this electronic video game world out of something else. So you, you do... I don't know. It's a good question. I think you need to conduct some experiments. <laughs> okay, lady up there. Hi. Um, Hi. Do you ever think, um, obviously you were saying earlier that uh, psychedelics aren't addictive and you only need them once um, to really realize the potential of the positive health benefits. Because they're not addictive, do you think Big Pharma has a, has a power over, over um, I guess, a more natural healing and are we ever going to get there to compete with Big Pharma, who currently do rule the health world, I guess? I, you know, I, I just lost the last two sentences. I did too. Will, you, will you say them <laughs> Do you think louder? we're ever going to get um, in the same level as Big Pharma, Big Pharmaceuticals? They sort of, they, they rule the world health. Yeah. Um, so um, they don't have a role in this world yet. Yeah. And they may not. I, this is a very hard kind of therapy for um, big pharma to get involved with. If yeah. you think about it, if they're It's not model, profitable. What? It's not profitable for them. Well, right now it's yeah. sure not. I mean, you, you're going to sell two or three pills. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You know, no, and which are not patentable. A, they're they're public domain. depressive becomes very, very uh, yeah. a good earner. They're much better off with the system we have now, where yeah. you have to take this antidepressant for the rest of your life for this diabetes medicine. So I don't know how they profit from this. Okay. You know, capitalism is inc has incredible ingenuity. They, they'll probably figure it out. Um, but I also don't know how conventional um, psychotherapists profit from this in that, again, it's, you're going to do this two or three times. Yes, you need a lot of therapeutic support, but then you go away. Uh, so you don't have the, the weekly meeting that goes on for years. So I think it's a challenge to the whole system we have, and that may slow its, uh, its adoption. Um, but it's a very square peg to put into the round hole of big pharma, conventional uh, psychotherapy, and even science, frankly, because these, these experiments are hard to do. It's very hard to blind control for a psychedelic. Everybody kind of knows who got the psilocybin and who got the sugar pill. Um, so all these issues are, are, are challenging, but that's exactly what makes it really interesting. Okay, positively last question. Last question. Um, hello, Michael. Hello, Rosie. It's really lovely to listen to you both. Um, early on in your discussion, um, you were asked whether your experience had left you with a durable or enduring yeah. change or other way of doing things or seeing things. And Rosie also <clears throat> talked about how maybe the mystical experience was, could be somewhat like AA in the sense of transcending the self and having an idea of a power greater than the self. And I, what we haven't really asked is, and you also discussed how it's helping people facing death, which obviously many alcoholics do, but are the experiments that are being done with other than those facing death, for instance, the smokers, the, mm -hmm. the addicts, even the depressed, are they showing signs of having a residue do we have follow-up? Difficult yes. the experiments may be to run, 
are you seeing positive? Yeah, the, the, the durability of the effect is different depending on what indication we're treating. So in the case of the smokers, 67% remained abstinent after a year. This is so much better than the current standard of care, which is, it's either a patch or the drug Shantix or something like that, which has about 20% after a year. So that's dramatic, and that's a, that's a, you know, if you can go a year without smoking, you're done, unless you choose to smoke again. Um, however, with depression, it hasn't been quite so uh, durable. Um, the people with depression had, most of them had immediate positive response and, and an amazing first month. Um, but by the sixth month, some people had started to relapse. And by a year later, most of them had, I, I believe, I'm not 100% sure. So the thinking is in the case of depression that this is something you're going to have to renew every X number of months. The value, though, of even having that month or two months or six months is inestimable. Mm. I talked to a woman uh, who lives in the city who um, uh, had been depressed continuously since 1991. She had a month where her depression completely lifted and it changed her life because she said, I now know it's possible. There is a destination worth striving to get to. That experience alone can forestall a suicide. The fact that you, you know that there is, there is a doorway out of this. Um, it's been very frustrating to some of these patients though because they can't get a, a new dose. Some of them go to Amsterdam um, and, and, and seek it underground. Uh, but right now, the, the protocols of the, of, the of, the, of the experiments don't allow them to get that so second dose that it, they apparently need. So longer, longer durability with addiction than depression. That's what we know that so far. And is smoking the only addiction that's really... No, alcoholism is... Al there has been a pilot study of alcoholism that was um, promising enough. Uh, I don't have the numbers at the tip of my, my mind. Uh, to uh, justify a, a large phase two trial that's happening right now at NYU with alcoholism. Mm -hmm. um, and really uh, alcoholics, you know, skid row alcoholics. Um, so that's going to be very interesting to, uh, to watch. Um, yeah, I mean, this, is, this research space is worth paying attention to. I think we're, we're going to learn a lot about disorders of the mind, and we're going to learn a lot about the mind, you know, as the pictures you saw said, I mean, for me, what's interesting about psychedelics is not just psychedelics per se, they're an interesting subject, but they are a window on the mind as it works well, as it works badly. They have a lot to teach us. There was a, I'll leave you with this quote from Stanislav Grof, which I read early in my research, and I thought it was ridiculous when I first read it, frankly. He said, he's a, he's a Czech psychiatrist living in America who was an early psychedelic psychiatrist when it was legal. Um, Um, and uh, he said that psychedelics would be for the study of the mind what the microscope was for the study of biology and the telescope was for the study of astronomy. It's a very audacious thing to say. I no longer think he's crazy. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rosie.